Hello. I said hello. I said hello. Yep. Isn't that Dave Matthews in every song? Yep. 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 Dave Matthews, he drops one of those in every song. Yep. 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 Hello. Hi. Look at us. We're doing this. We're doing it again. Another episode. Just because why not, right? What else am I going to do right now? Daughter just went to sleep. No sports on right now that I care about. I think I've seen every Netflix food show. Are they just doing food shows at this point? Just barbecue contests? Taco shows? Hunting shows where you kill the animal and eat the meat? We travel city to city looking for the best burger. We travel country to country looking for the best spaghetti. Netflix has a recipe for success, right? Every documentary series. Every documentary series. Just have a couple of cool hosts going city to city, country to country, showing us something that everybody likes. We went out on a mission to try to find the best chicken nuggets. And then they take you on just an amazing journey of Peru. And now they're in Malaysia. And look, off the southern coast of Alaska, they find some chicken nuggets that make us all go, mmm, that looks good. That looks really good. I'd love to go there one day. Isn't that everybody just watching the cooking shows and the food shows on Netflix? Mmm, I'd like to go there one day. Ooh, I'd like to go there one day. That's all of us. We're all a bunch of sheep just watching these people barbecue. Mmm, we should go there one day. That'd be fun to go there one day. And we Google flights. Google hotels around some barbecue place in North Carolina. We should really think about going there. You know, after the pandemic, maybe we should go there. Netflix. Meet missionaries. These three men went to every continent looking for the best steak. And I will just watch meat sizzle for 40 minutes. The hell is wrong with me? There's a lot of TV out there. We even watched the Emmys last night. Or some of it. Was it a joke? Schitt's Creek is a fine show, but they won the first nine categories. Did you see this? Schitt's Creek won the first nine categories? That kind of felt like a skit, like a hoax or something. Jimmy Kimmel, I like him. He's always funny, always smart. And he starts the show off. His monologue is in front of a large audience, but it turns out they were not really there. Just him on an empty stage. So there's the first gag just showing us old footage of celebrities laughing and clapping, giving standing ovations. And then Jimmy Kimmel says, of course, I'm just here alone. And then they get into best comedy, best actress, best actor, best writer, best director, best cinematographer, Shit's Creek, Shit's Creek, Shit's Creek, Shit's Creek, to the point where I'm like, no. Are they doing the longest running joke that Shit's Creek is just going to win all of the categories for the whole show? And Eugene Levy's son, Dan, I believe his name is. By the way, it's Levy this whole time? I've been calling him Eugene Levy my whole life. File that under meaningless mistakes. So his son, Dan, apparently created the show, writes the show, and he had a couple of nice speeches. You know, they win the first two awards and then speech number three is like, what the fuck? The internet is going to hate me. And you have to see all of the other nominees with their fake smiles pretend to be happy for Shit's Creek. And then by the eighth or ninth award, the cast... And crew was just like, what is going on? It was way too much of something good all at once. The cast and crew of Schitt's Creek, they probably assembled that night thinking it'd be nice to win one or two. And then when they won everything, for some reason, I think it took the fun out of it. Like people were fucking with them. 
Like think about what you want right now, anything you want. And then what if you just got that every single day? You'd be like, oh, come on, this is too good. It's too good right now. It's too good. It's too good. I don't deserve this. Do I? All right. So I guess that's a long way of saying I'm done with TV right now. No, thanks. Maybe we'll have a good NBA finals. NFL Sundays are great again, but really too much TV, too much, too much. So I tiptoe over to this room in my home called the office. And when I say tiptoe, I mean it. We don't want to wake that toddler. Sleep is precious. So I come in here. We got the white noise machine working in her room so she can't hear me. She doesn't know daddy uses the F word this often. I'm pretty good. I don't swear in front of her. I'm pretty good. And I hit record on audacity. And I speak into this microphone and I look at the old catalog of episodes. I go, okay, it's 109. What are you about to talk about? And I think I'm just going to talk about what's right in front of my face every day. Students, who are these people? I haven't even really met my students. I mean, if you consider saying hello to faces in boxes every day, hey, good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. I'm your teacher. I am a face in a box. You're all faces in Zoom boxes. This is remote learning. Kind of getting to know them. Kind of getting to know them. And they're kind of getting to know me. And we're all kind of getting used to it. But I almost examine them like it's an aquarium of teenagers. What are you all about? What are you doing right now? Are you paying any attention? I don't say this out loud, but kids at his breakfast table just eating a bowl of cereal. I'm talking about Robespierre and the French Revolution. I'm like, do you have the TV on in the back? You're just eating a bowl of Fruit Loops. TV's on in the back. But he has to be with me on the Zoom. And he's good enough. He's like good enough at pretending that he's attentive. I think most teachers have a few students like that. We're like, is this kid even with me? I don't know, but I can't keep pausing the class because I got about 30 other faces looking at me. And I realized something. I'm an anthropologist. And you could call me a teacher. You could call me that. Sure, go for it. But I'm an anthropologist. I'm just studying human behavior, past and present, making comparisons to what it was like when I was their age. Going back to the 90s. Hey, you remember the 90s pop-up video? VH1? Teachers are the biggest learners. I'm learning about how the young people function, how they act, how they speak, what their habits are, their likes, their dislikes, all within the realm of a virtual classroom. And I've been doing this for years. So I've been studying. All right, are we similar? I'm 39 now. Are you in any way having an experience here at this high school like I was having an experience when I was a sophomore, junior, senior at TL? And that answer is increasingly becoming no. No. This is when it happens. If you're young, like if you just got hired as a teacher right now and you're 23, 24, I bet you could find the kids a little more relatable. I could find them likable. I could find them cool. I'm impressed by a lot of them. But relatable is out the window. Relatable is out the fucking window. You could round up on my age, by the way. 40. Let's just say it. Let's just say it. I know. I'm 40. I mean, 39, but let's round up. It's now to the point where my wife tells me to be careful if she thinks I'm being too active. And she's right. Damn it, she's right. I wish she knew me when I was young. Oh, I used to love to dance. I used to love to jump in the streets. But it's true. If she sees me doing something a little too active, she goes, be careful. And she's not kidding. Like if there's a basketball on our street and a hoop and I go, watch this. 
and I try to dunk. She's just picturing a twisted ankle and some back issues. And I go, I'm fine, I'm fine. And every time I twist my ankle and I have some back pain. And I wish she wasn't right. I like to play with all of my daughter's toys. I like to go in the little pool. I like to go down the little slide. I like to do everything at a park. And guess what? I shouldn't. My wife goes, be careful. Like I'm 89, not 39. And holy shit, she's right every time. So yeah, you could round up. You could round up. And then with these kids, with these kids I'm working with, I don't know. I I don't get it. The way they talk. I mean, it's English still. And when I was their age, when I was 15, 16, like a lot of my students, I was using a lot of vernacular, a lot of slang. This is before you could just go to the Urban Dictionary and Google, what are these kids saying? But it's a little different. I could pick up on it pretty quickly. But I have examples. I have examples. Like I said, I'm an anthropologist. I'll tell you about teens right now. In this episode, I'll tell you about students. And I know I only have a little sample size, but maybe it's like this across America. First of all, if something's kind of extreme, intense, I've heard them go, whoa, that was extra. That was kind of extra. The word extra. It means like something just happened that rocked their world. They weren't expecting it. And they go, whoa, whoa, that was kind of extra. And I go, okay, I get it. I guess I get it. Another one, when they agree with me about something they like, some of them just go, bet. Oh, yeah, bet. B-E-T, bet. Like if I give instructions for an assignment and the light bulb goes off and they get it, they go, okay, right on, bet, bet. And some of them don't say, really? When they're surprised, let's say I tell them a piece of information that's surprising or enlightening, a lot of them say, actually? Instead of like, really? I probably would say, really? And they use the word actually. A lot of them. Actually? They beheaded King Louis and Marie Antoinette. Actually? They did this publicly. Actually. And I go, yeah, actually. Really? They still like saying raw and wet. Those we were not saying. When I was in high school, we liked sick. Ugh, that's sick. And we we did that sound a lot. Ugh. How caveman is that? When I was a teenager, if we were impressed with something, like let's just say you heard a new song. Did you hear the new Notorious B.I.G. album? Ugh. And you weren't kidding. Did you hear that new Drew Down song? Ugh. I don't hear that as much. These kids say it slaps. If a song is good, it slaps. That one I don't like. It slaps. Talking about, I guess, the beat. The melody, that song, man, Travis Scott's new album slaps the whole time, slaps, slaps you right across the face. We used sick a lot. I wonder why sick isn't good. Sick is terrible. And it meant good. If we tried a burrito, we loved it. We went, Ooh, that was sick. How dumb were we? Everything was so sick. Would you see that dunk last night by Spreewell? So sick. And this generation, it's raw. Bro, did you see that dunk by LeBron? So raw. Was it raw? See, I gotta be empathetic. I sounded just as dumb when I was their age. So when they say a song slaps, bet, actually, I have to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that, what you just said. And now I'm just gonna decipher the code. Okay, I get it. I better not adopt it. You know, when you hang out with somebody long enough, you might start talking like them. Husbands and wives, it happens. Roommates, best friends. People start talking like each other. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think I'm going to pick up their dialect. 
the way they do the English. I hope I never do the English like that. All right, so that's just how they talk. At one point, people in a different era used the term jive turkey, and they weren't kidding. You know what a jive turkey is? Made famous in that intense scene in Semi-Pro. With Tim Meadows, that's one of the greatest scenes. Oh my God. Semi-Pro underrated. There's a lot of comedies where you see the first even two, three times. You're like, okay. And then something happens. Something happens in a decent comedy if you give it enough reps where it gets really good. That's Semi-Pro. The Flint Tropics with Will Ferrell. So Jive Turkey. It's someone who is unreliable. I'm reading this right now. (laughs) This is dictionary.com. Jive Turkey. Someone who is unreliable. Makes exaggerations or empty promises. Or who is otherwise dishonest. The phrase is associated with the 70s culture. Jive Turkey. So if somebody was, you know, just totally dishonest or making a bunch of shit up, you could label them a jive turkey. Should we bring that one back? That's almost adorable. The next time one of my friends says something where I'm like, oh, you're bullshitting me. Come on, you jive turkey. But it was so offensive in the movie Semi-Pro. Didn't Will Arnett almost shoot him or someone got shot or the gun went off? I forget. I haven't seen the movie in years, but I remember watching that scene in the theater. The jive turkey scene and being like, whoa, what's about to happen? What does that even mean, jive turkey? You jive turkey. So I don't think you're surprised to hear that teenagers speak differently than your 39 round up to 40 year old teacher, of course. But how about driving? These are just things that I've picked up in the last two, three years. I'm an anthropologist. I got to tell you that. I'm an unofficial anthropologist. I should put that on a business card. That'll confuse people. Josh Rosenberg, unofficial anthropologist. Yeah, I'm studying humans. Aren't we all, though? Aren't we all kind of anthropologists? So interestingly, I've talked to enough kids who don't have their driver's licenses. I feel like that's always tough to make it a plural. Driver's licenses. Just sounds like I'm dragging the last part. I've talked to a lot of kids who don't have their driver's licenses. And I realized it's a trend. It's something about this generation. When I was in high school, when you were 15, you got your permit. 16, of course you were at the DMV on your birthday. DMV, take that test. Promise to drive friends to school the next morning. My group of friends, I mean, like I said, my sample size is small, but I just extrapolate it and figure that's how 16-year-olds were when I was in high school. Of course, we're going to get our license. We can't wait. Gives us freedom. Either use our parents' car or maybe buy a shitty beater car and then... The world is your oyster. The world is your playground. Yet the more and more kids I was talking to, hearing that they, yeah, I'll do it later in life. A lot of students were just thinking, yeah, I'm not in a rush for that. And I started putting the puzzle together. I started thinking, okay, there's reasons. There's reasons why they're not just so gung-ho and assertive about getting that license. So here's a stat I looked up. You like data? Do you like data? I got data. The stat's kind of amazing. So according to the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute, nowadays only about 25% of all 16-year-olds in America have their license. That's down from 47% in 1983. So go back to the early 80s all the way through my life. And then something about these teens nowadays are not as impatient. They say, yeah, I'll do it later in life. Yeah, later on. I'll have more time. And that is part of it. Having more time. I guess you do have to put in some time with all the hours with driver's ed and driver's training. And a lot of these teens are what, too busy? So that's the why. Why? 
Well, obviously the first one is fear, right? They're inundated with so much more information about crashes and hearing about distracted drivers and drunk drivers and distracted drunk drivers. So yeah, the roads sound scary. They consume probably more headlines and more news on their smartphones, hearing about it, hearing about it, just hearing about more and more car crashes. Why? Because you're carrying around a computer in your hand at all times that might have breaking news. So yeah, it might skew the percentages in your mind of how many people are actually drunk driving or just recklessly driving or distractedly driving because they're texting and driving. And there is some truth to that as well. Teen drivers nowadays are way more likely to be in serious crashes than those kids back in the early 80s. They are. They feel the buzz in their pocket. Text message, you're at a red light, you're at a stop sign, or maybe you're on a slow street. Yeah, teens are crashing cars. They are. So maybe some of them realize that and they're smart enough to say, yeah, I'm not mature enough, but fear plays into it, of course. Other reasons, I think you can brainstorm some, but parents are also more scared. I think parents are more fearful. There's more helicopter parents today trying to keep a watchful eye on their kids, monitoring their kids very closely. Latchkey generation, it's almost done. I think kids just used to naturally have more freedom because they would just leave the house, leave a note. Hey, mom, dad went to the park, went to a friend's house, sleeping out for the weekend, going camping. Bye. You have no way of contacting me. I don't have a cell phone, but I'll see you on Sunday at some point. That was normal. Nowadays, parents are saying, you're staying. A lot of parents, you gotta stay close. We have a leash. Literal or figurative, I don't know, but there's a leash. There's costs, I guess, but that's always been the case. You do have to pay money, insurance, an actual car. And maybe the biggest one is the most obvious one. These phones make them feel like they're in touch with a bunch of people. They're not exploring the county. They're not exploring the city. They're just maybe in a room in their homes feeling like they're satisfied with their evening. I mean, they still socialize, but maybe they already feel in touch with people and humans through the screens, through all the apps, through all the tapping of the screen communication they do. Maybe they don't feel like, I got to get out tonight. I just got to get out of my house and see some friends. Maybe they're in their room feeling totally connected to their friends. So they're like, why do I need to drive and see anybody? I don't know. But it's weird. I noticed it for so long that a lot of them just were not getting their licenses. Now, some do. Don't get me wrong. Of course, a lot of kids get their licenses. I feel like changing the topic so I don't have to say that word anymore. But that number is down 47% from 83. I got to backtrack in life and think about why it was such just a rite of passage. I was young for my grade. I didn't get my license till I was a senior. I turned 16 in September of 98. September of 98. I'm a 16-year-old senior. Could that be right? No. Wait, hold on. I want to get this right. When did I turn 16? Junior year. Okay. Got my license as a junior, which might even be considered late in the game. Actually, I forget. The point is, I got it immediately just like everybody I knew. And sometimes the plan was just drive. Just go down a street. See if you see another person. Because you haven't been texting with them all day. So just see if you see somebody. Drive down a street of a girl you have a crush on. Maybe she's in her driveway. Drive to Burger King, go through the drive-thru, get two Whoppers with cheese for less than four bucks, and a Dr. Pepper diet, tastes just the same. Is that the only diet soda that tastes just like the real thing? Yeah, I do believe that. And also the ability to drive to Candlestick Park, I'm thinking why, and the Oakland Coliseum, why, and Kizar, Pro-Am Games, why did I need the license so badly to get the fuck out? 
I'm more scared nowadays. I'm more of a fearful 39-year-old than I was a 16-year-old. I guess that's what happens, right? That's why we see a lot of fearless teens. Fearless. But I'm going to call them smarter. Now, I'm just going to go on a rant and give them compliments. I think they're smarter. Here's another study for you. They drink less. These teens, high school age, college age, they drink less. When I was in high school, a lot of people just knew there were kegs in the hills, 40 ounces by the creek. Drinking underage was so normal it didn't feel illegal. I know that sounds crazy, but underage drinking was so normal. And in my head, maybe not in the head of the adults, but in my head, wasn't even stigmatized for a senior in high school to be in a park drinking red cups of Keystone Light was normal. I never viewed it as criminal behavior. I didn't. Delinquent behavior. It was so normalized because once again, the rite of passage, you look at what the older kids are doing and you go, okay, they're driving cars and they're drinking beer at keg parties. Okay. That's what we do. It's like, think for yourself, right? I don't know if I just hatched, I've said this before. If I just hatched on a planet and knew nobody, would I have a desire to do a lot of the things that I did when I was younger? I don't know. I think I was influenced just like a lot of young people. But nowadays, alcohol abuse, you're not seeing it at a young age as much. Here's another study. Teenage and college age Americans nowadays are consuming alcohol at lower rates than people even 10 years ago, according to the Monitoring the Future study at the University of Michigan. The most widely discussed hypothesis is that young people have changed the way they organize their social lives. So teenagers a generation ago, two generations ago, would possibly organize their social lives around a keg in a parking lot on a hill to drink and drink. And that was normalized how people socialized and went to dances that way. But now these kids are being breathalyzed quite a bit, going into games, going into dances. They're cracking down house parties. Are you kidding me? House parties in the suburbs. I've been told you could get your house capped, get your parents in trouble. So far less house parties. Parents don't want to be castigated on next door. That apple, fuck your life up. If you have a party, they know it's your house. Keeping the neighbors up? Come on now. And also, according to this study, they say smoking isn't cool anymore. Less kids are smoking cigarettes, which was viewed as a gateway drug. I know when I say tobacco, a lot of people don't feel like drug but it was viewed as a gateway drug to alcohol. But because smoking is not viewed as cool anymore, and I know about vaping and jewels and all that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Smoking, tobacco, just having a cigarette. Used to be cool. Think about all those 80s comedies, 90s comedies. Cigarette. Senior smoking a cigarette out in the backyard, having a Budweiser. That was a cool sight. Not anymore. I guess that sight, that image I just had you conjure up is not cool. Which means they're smarter. These kids are smarter. And then the study also says, you know who's drinking more than ever? Boomers. You baby boomers. Plus maybe. I don't know. I'm just guessing now. This is guesswork. Unofficial anthropology. Guesswork. Maybe the beer game has changed so much that they know how to appreciate a beer. They're not just going to plow through 12 Coors Lights, playing up the river, down the river, King's Cup, slap game, all the drinking games that you're indoctrinated to know all the drinking games that you just funnel it into your system. Hi, where do I sign up for liver destruction? Okay. This lane. Terrific. Now these kids, maybe they're more educated. I don't know. Or maybe they know how to enjoy some of these hoppy micro brews. That's just a total guess. 
For high schoolers and college kids, the ones that do drink, are they drinking the nice beers? Those microbrews? The IPAs? Where beer drinkers nowadays sound like wine snobs? It's got a citrus ceiling, but kind of a floral undertone that I'm enjoying. Seriously, have you heard beer nerds talk about beer? It's not how we were talking about it when I was in high school and college. Beer was just something to rapidly consume. Nowadays, maybe it is. Maybe it is attracting more of a wine type of discussion. But young people, not drinking as much, not binging as much as they used to. I heard Jim Gaffigan say that as well. Jim Gaffigan, the comedian. I forget where he was being interviewed, but he was talking about how he drank in college just on the verge of death every night of partying. Just blackout, waking up somewhere you didn't intend to wake up, blinking yourself into reality. Where was I? What did I do? How'd that happen? And Gaffigan is a parent now. He's thinking kids aren't going to be doing that. They'll go to college, they'll still party, but maybe value what college could mean a little more as a launching pad into certain careers. If the economy right now is plummeting and having a job, a quality job is at a premium, maybe you'll see some kids looking at college and saying, yeah, I should probably keep it focused on getting that degree, not staying here for six years, toiling away with a bunch of D grades, but to take it seriously. And that's what Gaffigan was saying, that he didn't think kids were blacking out as much, maybe. Perhaps I sound very naive and they're still drinking up a storm, but that's the study I'm going with. And my final observation, I think these teens are going to care a little more about government than my generation. When I say my generation, when I'm growing up middle school to high school, I don't remember having many political discussions. Now I know we could bring up the Monica Lewinsky scandal. The affair in the Oval Office, that was scintillating, that was gossipy, that was TMZ action back then. And I remember Bill Clinton being made fun of on Saturday Night Live a little bit. But what's happening right now is so polarizing, it's so toxic and ugly that people are finding themselves so deeply planted on either the right side or the left side. And it consumes more of their thoughts. I am teaching government this semester, so I could see, you know, just saying the name Trump to some of these kids, it causes a reaction. When I was their age, the president of the United States was Bill Clinton. We weren't talking about his policies. We weren't talking about his economy, his overseas policies. We just, you know, had a president who played the saxophone on Arsenio. And Phil Hartman played him wonderfully on SNL. But yeah, I don't remember just chatting about Bill Clinton and the executive branch and how the cabinet is progressing. But because it's so contentious right now, I mean, it really is so ugly. People on both sides are just being fed a full meal every day to further their distinct viewpoints on how they feel. Every day, based on the news sources you're either choosing to consume or are being sent your way because of the social media algorithms that know us so well and they know our browsing habits. But it's causing a lot of people to care, I will say that. So I think that this generation, these teens, I think that they're going to vote more. I do. I think that they're going to value their vote a little more than maybe my generation. Do all of my friends vote? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think all of my friends vote on every proposition, on every board member, assemblyman, city council members, governor, of course, president. And maybe that's because I come from a generation where it didn't seem so polarizing. The news didn't seem so hard-hitting and intense every day of my life during my developmental years. And then, of course, I go to college and it's Bush versus Gore. And that becomes a Supreme Court case with the hanging chads. And then no looking back. 
from 9-11 to where we are right now. It's just intensified, which could be good for awareness. If you're aware of how government functions and the power of what you can do in a democratic country, and more of these teens are woke and want to become activists in a way that's productive, now I'm feeling uplifted. Now I'm feeling like some of them, because of how it's looking right now, the Trump-Hillary election, the Trump-Biden election coming up, young people give a shit. They do. They care. They care. They absolutely care. And when people care, people vote. So we'll see how that shakes out. Should I get into the Electoral College? Is that why you tuned in? Should I get in some of the flaws of that system? Huh? No. No cynicism right now. We're keeping it pure. That's what anthropology is. It's pure. Right? All right, I'll end with this because I'm talking about presidents and I got a fun fact. I'm pretty sure you're going to remember this fun fact. All right, Grover Cleveland. Do you know that name? Grover Cleveland? It's a good name. Well, good old Grover was not married when he entered the White House, when he was elected president. Grover Cleveland, not married. So are you wondering, did he get married? Well, yeah, during his first term. And he served two terms, but they were not consecutive terms. There's another fun fact. But Grover fucking Cleveland. Sorry, I haven't sworn enough. There has not been enough profanity in this podcast. So I felt like that was a decent time. So Grover fucking Cleveland, talking about the 1880s here. And I remember this vividly. I mean, I was a big Grover guy back in the 1880s. I remember this vividly. No, clearly I read this. But 49 years old. In the White House, he's 49 years old, he's in the White House, marries a 21-year-old. That wouldn't fly nowadays. His wife's name was Frances, and as the story goes, Grover knew her when she was a child. Fucking Grover. Well, the 1800s were a little different. So the report I read is just weird presidential history, is that he knew her when she was eight years old. She was like a family friend. And then they tied the knot once he got settled in D.C. Then he brought Francis in. 49 to 21. So when Grover was 28, she was born. Why did I look that up? Why did I Google, has there ever been a president that wasn't married when entering the White House? I don't know. I just thought it would be like a great reality show, right? They always have a first lady. Isn't it weird that there's currently a first lady? You talk about a president that hogs the headlines. Not a lot of Melania talk. You know, one president ago, Michelle Obama, she was like this highly respectable leader of a woman, strong convictions, incredible speaker and writer. And now it's just like, oh yeah, Trump's wife? That's our first lady? I mean, that was a respectable role. You look at history. Look at history. This is a role. Eleanor Roosevelt we're talking about. A lot of women have done some special things as first lady. I don't know. I don't even want to Google this, but I actually don't know what she does all day. She's a former model. That's all I know. That's really all I know. Maybe I'm uninformed. Maybe she's doing amazing things every day, right? Should I give her the benefit of the doubt? She's just doing amazing things every day. Really, really just impressed with the monumental legacy she's building. Her face will be in history classrooms. We're all better people because of our first lady. I got to tiptoe around this stuff, don't I? I just got to tiptoe around all this stuff. We'll get through it. All right, I'm done. It's time to go scroll through some Netflix barbecue shows. 
these four fellas went to Japan looking for Wagyu beef. Wagyu or Wagyu? I've had it for the first time, by the way. Had it. My buddy Brandon made it. It's unreal. Wagyu beef. If you've never had it, it exceeds the hype. You don't need teeth. It is the most tender beef in the history of beef, 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 beef. You know that song? Beef, beef. It slaps. Have you had Wagyu? You should watch a Netflix show about it. I bet there's six documentaries about Wagyu beef right now. All right, episode 109. What happened? I don't know. Anthropology happened, I think. But it's all in the books. It's in the books. This is now history. I'll talk to you soon.